Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is the artist Jody Wood. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. Jody Wood is a New York-based artist using video, installation, performance, and community organization to engage with socially informed content. Her project, Beauty in Transition, partnered with 18 transitional housing agencies in New York, Colorado, and Pennsylvania to establish a hair salon on wheels serving homeless populations. Choreographing Care, a project supporting care workers in anti-poverty support, started as a socially engaged art project and was adopted into an emergency shelter in Charlotte, North Carolina, as an organizational initiative. In 2014, Jody was the winner of a prestigious fellowship award for socially engaged art from A Blade of Grass in New York City. Her work has been honored with grant support from the New York Council for the Humanities, Brooklyn Arts Council, and the Rima Hort Mann Foundation. Her work has been exhibited internationally and featured in press such as The Atlantic, Hyperallergic, and MSNBC. Uh, Jody, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. I think when many people hear the word art, typically people's minds might go to old masters and, and paintings. So if I say Mona Lisa, of course, people can instantly conjure that. Or perhaps something maybe even that feels a little more um, present and contemporary, like you know Warhol or Picasso or something like that. But your work seems to be really intersectional and multidisciplinary. So I wonder how you think about uh, the definition of art and how you think about yourself as an artist? That's a really good question. And I feel like every generation of artists kind of push those limits and boundaries of what art can be. I mean, when you mentioned Jackson Pollock and, you know, when he was making work, at first it just looked like nothing, right? Like that's not art. My kid could do that. It's just a bunch of drips on a canvas. And so I think drawing on... um, work in the 1960s of Alan Capro and his happenings and all kinds of work that was going on there that was more about um, having creating an artwork that was finished by the audience um, and their engagement with that work or their participation in that work. Um, that's the lineage that has brought us to, you know, what we now call social practice. Um, and that's the discipline that I find myself familiar with and interested in. It's not a traditional art medium because we're working with human relationships as our kind of artistic medium. We're not using we're not going to the art supply store <laughs> to buy um, paints and canvases and sculpting materials necessarily, or maybe we are, but that's not our um, primary art. And it's also, it's work that I feel like this is um, how I frame it personally is I think of the artwork is very process-based. It's not culminating in any kind of an object 
Um, the artwork is the process that's happening and the audience, the primary audience for the work are the participants who are there physically throughout that process. I do see my role as an artist in facilitating these, um, these projects that are happening with a particular audience. And that's my primary audience. And then I also, my other role as an artist is to translate that work into an art context where it's like being shown in a gallery or museum and making it um, accessible for a secondary audience. So the show that's in Bemis now, that's kind of the remnants of the real project. What is showing in Bemis is not the art. It's a remnant of the art, if that makes sense. You know, we live in a very, very consumer-driven uh, capitalistic world in, in the West and, and perhaps globally. And, and so there needs to be some remnant, as it were, if there's going to be any kind of secondary consumption of art. But it seems a little bit to me as if your work and, and the work of people that are engaged in social practice art is really quite subversive. Um, this idea of putting people first and that the work is happening that is finished by the audience and I wonder if you do think your art in some ways is quite subversive hmm. well I definitely think the way I define art is expansive you know I was just reading this essay by Anne Douglas uh, she writes about participation she was talking about participation as a way or like how artists are using participation as a way of centering care and empathy to counter neoliberalism and the fragmentation in society that is caused by neoliberalism, which is of course going hand in hand with this, with capitalism and the survival of the fittest. And so there's this kind of way that I feel that participation or social practice can really harness forms of participation to create solidarity and community and to rethink our kind of common ways of, of doing things. You know, my, my goal is not to antagonize people or antagonize systems. I know that a lot of activism can use that as a tool to make change, but that is not my goal. Um, I often really try to center care in my practice as an ethics. And so that, you know, art or calling it art, to me, it kind of just expands the, expands a framework that I'm working within, or it takes it a little bit suspends a definition of what I'm doing. So I think by calling it art, people have questions in their head when they're engaging with the project either in a gallery or in, you know, as a primary participant, but it creates this sense of not knowing exactly what to expect and hopefully an, a kind of an openness depending on what the past experiences of art have been for that person. Also, you know, I did want to mention, this is kind of interesting too, because I think this is a fine line that social practice walks when, when we're talking about creating an experience and then packaging that experience for a secondary audience in an art museum, kind of making a career out of that. Um, because I do feel like the work we're doing, it's, it's not just out of a sense of like pure altruism, like, oh, I'm just trying to help people. I just want to be of service and help people. But it's more about actually starting a conversation and making connections in society 
um, to have these conversations that I feel are missing. And so when I'm putting this work in, in a gallery context, or when, you know, when it's in the media or there's a, an article about it, I'm really excited about the potential conversations that's bringing up for people to have of all walks of life, you know? So I think it is, it's not meant to be invisible. This work is really meant to be discussed and picked apart. And, you know, there's a lot of contradictions that, that I'm working with and that other social practice artists are working with that hopefully will be uh, discussed. then this is a good point to transition into a particular project to breathe life into some of the conceptual things we've been talking about. Um, you mentioned the work at the Bemis, and it's part of an exhibition there uh, that centers on empathy. And the particular project that you worked on uh, that is featured there is called Beauty in Transition. And that project is an artistic project that established a, a pop-up mobile hair salon, providing beauty services including a hair wash, cut, color, and a style service uh, to willing participants uh, at that time were living in homeless shelters. So that's that's kind of the general scaffold, as it were, the structure of, of the project. But would you mind just perhaps just giving us a little more insight into sort of the genesis of, of that project and and what it was that drew you to creating it that way? It was taking place all inside of this refurbished box truck that was driving around and partnering with different homeless service agencies and transitional housing agencies. Talking about hair care in this context was actually pretty, uh, it, you know, it sounds like a, a really simple gesture, but it was a bit subversive in, in the context of service provision. It's not something that you would think that people in that circumstance would need or wouldn't be their first priority. Um, and of course, that project really happened on a small scale. It was, you know, just one truck. It wasn't like a fleet of trucks or a huge organization or something. It was a pretty small scale. It wasn't solving homelessness and it wasn't even meant to, to do that. It was trying to function on a different level where I wanted to talk about stigma, social stigma. So one of the primary objectives was really to bring in stylists and people who were experiencing homelessness into this space, a social space where these stigmas of touch and these abstract stigmas of homelessness could dissolve. So 
when I was trying to get volunteer stylists to be part of this project, a lot of people had um, pretty, were pretty scared to be in that situation. They didn't know what to expect, you know, and a lot of it was just learned stereotypes, you know, in a way, or just these kind of these things you hear about. So people would, would kind of come in with the assumption that they needed to wear gloves while they were doing people's hair, or they needed to protect themselves. Some people asked if I was going to have like a bouncer (laughs) in the salon. (laughs) I was like, absolutely not. (laughs) You'll see it won't be necessary. But right now I know you have this abstract here. Um, So Anyway, but it was interesting to see that people who had those fears, those just dropped away instantly when, you know, people started doing hair. So the people who thought they should wear gloves, they put on the gloves at first, but then the minute they had their first client, they just took the gloves off. It was just so unnecessary. So that was kind of, you know, that was an interesting part of the project. I I really like thinking about ways to break down social stigmas that Um, that are just coming from abstract notions of fear and vulnerability. And then the project was also trying to bring up conversations about what are basic human needs when you are going through a transition, you know, the shelters providing a bed, um, food, some basic social services, trying to get you into housing, of course. Um, But there's also the need for social inclusion that everyone has um, and also the need for touch. So those are kind of more ephemeral or like uh, needs that are connected with identity that a shelter could never, shouldn't be responsible for meeting those needs, but it's also, it was a conversation I wanted to start in that context. I appreciate the comments that you've made about this because it reflects some of what I felt watching the video piece that is part of the installation that goes along with some stills of the clients that use the the service. I'm wondering if from your point of view, there, there was this sense of equipping the clients with a degree of autonomy, with a voice, with a way to rediscover their dignity themselves in some way. Was that part of the project plan or was that something that you just discovered as part of the artistic process? I definitely think that that emerged a bit unexpectedly. I, I remember somebody, somebody talking about her hair wash as if she was getting baptized. She was comparing it to baptism. And that was an interesting moment for me because 
I think there was just this sense of renewal that was happening. And, and it, you know, it makes sense. And I think that is why that does come into why I was working in this way, but more of an intuitive level. I wasn't overtly aiming for this goal, but, you know, I think when you are going through a extreme transition or even a, a gentle transition, I mean, you might have this, there's this instinct to kind of cut all your hair, change your look or something like that. And I think hair is one of these interesting mediums that it is, you know, it's dead cells basically growing from your body. It's, but then it is, it speaks so much to our self-identity and our self-expression, our cultural identity. So it's so intertwined with like who we are, but in a way it's just like dead material in our in our head so or growing out of our head um and so then when when this trend was happening or when the the dead ends were being cut off it was really a physical manifestation of this change and this new chapter in life and and also looking ahead to a newness that was coming and not losing hope so i think it did i, I you know i am really interested in in just physical metaphors that help um reveal what is happening internally and emotionally in someone's life. But yeah, I liked, I liked a lot of what you just said in your reading of the project, because I think there is a tendency, not everyone does this, um, but it, there is a tendency for some people to internalize um, the society's judgment that's being placed on them and the stigmas that are being placed on them. So if you're always told that you're, um, that you're not good enough or you're not you're, or you're worthless or whatever's given to you, you should just be automatically grateful for. And you, you don't have any um, right to choose to have a preference or to choose what you want. Um, then some folks can really internalize that and start to feel like they're not deserving of, of care and comfort. Some people not, some people are no, you know, are very confident, even, even if they're going through this extreme change. And that's really remarkable to me that some people can really retain their identity through that. But, you know, by having a sense of autonomy or having a, that control over your self-expression, I think that is something that is really powerful when you don't have any privacy of your own, you're living in a shelter, you have to share a bathroom with everyone else, Actually, a lot of people aren't even allowed to bring in iron, you know, hot irons or their hair products into the shelter at all. So what happens is if you do want to, you know, straighten your hair or something or like fix your hair, you have to go down to the front desk, wait in line, you have to check out the hair dryer or the hot iron, then you have to bring it back in 30 minutes, you have to do it in, you know, in the bathroom with a bunch of other people watching. And so it's, it's just something that doesn't end up happening because so inconvenient. And so then people just kind of stop taking care of themselves or that, you know, people can tend to stop taking care of themselves because the circumstances are pretty stacked against them. But then also, if you think about it, if you are, if you don't have that privacy, so like if, if you have a house of your own, those walls of your house, this is like a, a physical barrier between you and the world. It's a place that you can actually feel safe, hopefully. Um, you can let down your guard, you can have privacy, you can kind of um, restore. 
when you don't have your own home, your body is a public space. You are on display all the time. You're, you don't have that extra barrier between yourself and the world. So then the physical body takes on so much more importance, you know, in that circumstance. Okay. Yeah. So I also just want to note that some of the hairstylists who were serving in the, in the um, project were actually living in the shelters as residents. So that's just something I forgot to mention at first that I think is important because that there were a lot of people living in the shelter that had cosmetology backgrounds. And I didn't want this project to just be about a one-way service provision, you know, or modeling that. And so actually it was interesting to see those labels dissolve. And if anyone walked into the the truck, they would never be able to tell who's homeless and who's not. Also to note that Several of the hairstylists who volunteered had actually been homeless themselves at one point, and that's why they wanted to serve in the project, because that is something they experienced, and they knew the impact um, that a service like that could have. Use the word touch. It's a remarkable degree of intimacy and vulnerability. I'm wondering if choosing hairstyling and, and working with these populations that you've talked about, if that was sort of a really intentional and really necessary part of your practice to really center this idea of humans interacting physically. And if that is accurate, I'm wondering what you think about the pandemic and its effects on perhaps making people less willing to be, you know, physically intimate. I mean, a lot of my work is about just intimacy and facilitating face-to-face contact and relationships that can only happen when you're sharing the same physical space. And there is something just really essential about about that and and doing that with strangers too. I feel like there's this kind of power in connecting and having these unexpected connections with people outside of your social network that you would never necessarily think you had anything in common with because you come from such a different background. But in fact, you can relate on tons of things. And I, I really like that idea of creating social bridges or creating kind of these containers, these projects where social bridges can 
across different, you know, socioeconomic divides. But yeah, the pandemic was really highlighting also the importance of this. You know, people started getting skin hunger, what we call skin hunger. I had never heard that term before until the pandemic. And it makes a lot of sense. You know, I think our bodies crave touch and contact. And I remember, you know, just how much I wanted a hug or just how much I craved having a hug or giving a hug to someone. And it did feel like a starvation in a way, like a physical um, social starvation was happening. And I think the almost like what I saw as the greatest danger of the, um, of that particular aspect of the pandemic was that, well, maybe we're just going to get used to this. Okay. So this is kind of interesting, The there's this MIT study that looked at physical hunger that you, the way that physical hunger um, manifests in your brain, like the neuro um, signals that that are triggered by physical hunger. And they realized that social hunger and social isolation produced very similar patterning in the neuroreceptors in, in, in the same parts of the brain. So basically the, the comparison is, hey, social hunger is real. <laughs> it's physical. You know, it is a need and social isolation can create that kind of craving, but also that study noticed that people who had already experienced a lot of social isolation when they were put into this experiment, um, they actually had less, uh, less apparent signaling in the brain because there was this way they had gotten used to it in a way. It's like a starving person. You almost cross this threshold where you're not even hungry anymore. You're just like, don't even, you don't even feel hungry anymore because you're beyond that level of, of hunger. And so that was kind of this thing in the back of my head. I wonder if we're going to actually be so isolated that we're not going to be in touch with our needs anymore for connection with one another. And, you know, everybody's different. I'm not sure, you know, maybe that is true for some people. I think in general, now that the vaccines are rolling out, um, I think people are pretty eager to gather again and to hug each other again and be affectionate um, and be close in a physical way. But, But it definitely, it also kind of changed the way I was making work at the time too. I started to do some digital projects, um, but the the projects began in the digital realm, but then they were actually meant to bring people together um, face-to-face. i
leaping to the project Choreographing Care, which as I understand it, is a series of workshops and performances that address issues of compassion fatigue and um, secondhand trauma uh, that affect caregivers and social workers. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just giving a slightly more detailed explanation of what is that? When I was doing Beauty in Transition, I was working with social workers to bring that project to different service agencies. And I was noticing this phenomenon of compassion fatigue or secondary trauma without understanding what it was. So I was seeing a lot of hypervigilance, almost a kind of um, what looked like a paranoia. I saw a lot of, a lot of social workers that were um, very compassionate, but also just burning out, you know, they were exhausted. It seemed like there was just a lot of people working in the upper administration that didn't really seem to have compassion at all for the population they were serving. Um, there was a lot of just coldness and dehumanization. Um, but then, you know, there was also a lot of warmth too. I want to, I don't want to paint it that I was only seeing, you know, this lack of compassion, but, but the thing I started, you know, it was really frustrating at first when you saw a social worker or an administrator who didn't seem to have compassion, it was really shocking and, and yeah, just disappointing. But then as I looked into it further, I understood that secondary trauma, actually, it starts as an extreme amount of empathy and compassion. Um, so you could walk into that situation as a social worker and have tons of compassion, but then over time, you would be so burnt out by being in that system and not taking care of yourself that you end up having these kind of PTSD symptoms or like symptoms of that look exactly like PTSD. And one of those manifestations is to like block your compassion is to block the empathy because it's too overwhelming to be in that state all the time of having high amounts of empathy, but not being able to serve people the way, the way you wish that you could. So shelters are often, or just across the board, they're pretty universally under-resourced. I think there's a purpose to this because I think in our society, we want to reward the good capitalists <laughs> and we want to punish someone who has not um, been materially successful. Of course, it doesn't make any, you know, of course it's, the system is set up, it's rigged, right? So certain people are always going to lose and other people are always going to win. But I think to have these kinds of, if a shelter was too comfortable or if it was too nice, then there's this kind of idea, this abstract kind of almost like unconscious societal idea that that would mean, well, then anyone could just be in a shelter and you wouldn't have to work anymore. And it would be rewarding people who don't want to work and be part of this capitalist system that we value so much. Yeah, so that's kind of what I observe. And I think that, that those ideas, um, because we stigmatize people who are 
not wealthy, you know, people who are impoverished, um, we also stigmatize the people who are helping them, the social workers who are there every day, um, you know, helping with essential needs, helping them get back into housing. When I, when I would meet with social workers um, and made friends with some social workers too, there was this idea that what they did at work, it couldn't translate, like they couldn't really share what they did with other people because it wouldn't be understood or it would just be stigmatized. And it, it is almost like um, someone who's in a very traumatic, like an EMT or something, somebody going through very intense, high urgency job with a lot of suffering and a lot of trauma. Um, and then what are you going to do sit around with your friends and talk about, you know, these horrible things you've seen all day and have them respond with shock and horror, you know? So I think that there's this way of like, whatever's happening inside the shelter, it's very extreme and it's, it can be dangerous um, for the workers and it can be very traumatic, you know, for the workers, but then you can't really share that with people. And then because it's such a high urgency job, there isn't really time to process what's happening at work. So that's where this is the long way around of talking about the genesis of choreographing care. But basically, uh, yeah, I just, I've, I thought it would be, um, thought it would be useful to have a space during the paid workday, not just to happen after work or on the weekend or on their own time, but during the work hours for processing. And part of my, you know, background as a performance artist is to look at, like I mentioned before, you know, physical manifestations for emotional states. And so a lot of what we did drew on theater methods um, to externalize some of the internal emotional states or just situations and reframe those physically so that they were seen in a different way. And um, I also use techniques from Theater of the Oppressed. Augusto Boal coined this whole methodology um, in Brazil where he was having people, um, just having people look at their life circumstances differently through theater. And he has tons of techniques for this. And I was using a lot of those techniques. And so, yeah, anyway, it was, it was creating these workshop series using these techniques. Like the world is on a side, nothing can bring me down tonight. And ooh, baby, when we're together, you and I, your touch sends chills down my spine. So you've talked about secondhand trauma, and now I'm thinking about thirdhand trauma, which is which is your own. How are you yourself um, inoculating, 
yourself from the traumas that you see that you're working with as your social in your social practice? Um, how are you maintaining a sense of personal harmony as you are going through this work uh, with people that are experiencing their own PTSD symptoms or their own systemic institutional trauma? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I need to practice what I preach. I, think. <laughs> I need to be better at this, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a real thing. Like, uh, I mean, I know a lot of activists who, too, who are engaged with social issues, who are very passionate about, um, you know, correcting injustices and finding ways forward because there isn't much individuals can do as an, you know, as an individual, it can feel like you're very powerless against these Goliath systems that are causing inequality. Um, and I, yeah, I, I do know a lot of activists who also just feel, um, feel the kind of ripple effects, you know, once you know about them, they're in, you know, you can't unknow them. So I do feel like I can't really step away from this anymore because I, I know, yeah, I know what's the more that I know, the more I want to engage with it, but also the more that that feels, it can feel very impossible or slow moving. Um, and so I do tend to work on small scales and I think that there's something really that gives me a regeneration when I, when I work in even just a small group of 10 people or something, when we're working together in solidarity, um, you know, these projects are also about creating kind of solidarity spaces. And that is really regenerating, even if it's on a small scale. You know, I, I also think the, the work that I do, it's not for everyone. It's a few people are going to gravitate toward it and get something out of it. And it's really for, it's for them. When I have goals that are manageable, that helps me to not <laughs> go down that road of feeling like hopeless and burnt out. So my goal isn't to end homelessness or to change everyone's mind. But it is, you know, I, I really do. I would love to see, um, I would love to see some real system change. And I don't think I'm going to see that in my lifetime. Clearly, you are intrigued by, you're drawn to interpersonal relationships and sort of the, how they form, how they, how they dissolve, you know, this sticky magic that keeps them healthy or not. Where did this come from? And if that question turns into, you know, what was your childhood like? By all means, uh, you know, share share your upbringing. Mm. Yeah, and also how these relationships are are really influenced by the systems around us and the institutions that we're in. That is becoming even more interesting to me too. Like how institutions are, in a way, have this kind of influence over us and a consciousness in their own right that we can try to understand and change. But for my own influence uh, as an artist, I guess I grew up not really, not really being that savvy about art, especially contemporary art. You know, my, um, my parents weren't art. I don't have artists in my family. And my notion of art was like paintings of ducks and paintings of nature and things like that. So, um, but I think 
a big influence uh, that I keep coming back to is that I, my dad was a mortician for um, my whole, you know, for when I was growing up in, in my childhood home. And so there was this, a real sense of felt stigma around that because death is very stigmatized and just a lot of trauma that he had to experience doing that job. But I think that that, that just like was an experience where I could feel this tension between, well, this, to me, this is very like banal and kind of normal everyday part of my life is the, you know, is death and talking about death and seeing it and hearing about it. And I mean, it was just dinner table conversation in a way because it was the profession, you know, the family profession. And so it wasn't like something that was glorified. It was just something that was, could be very tragic and sad, but it was real. And it was, it happened, you know, and it wasn't something that we denied talking about. And then of course the, you know, the rest of the community doesn't, or other people, you know, don't want to talk about that. And in fact, think it's kind of creepy or scary or, or just avoid it. And, and so I guess I think that that's why I was really intrigued by, well, why, you know, why are these subjects, why exactly are we stigmatizing these very normal everyday parts of our condition, our human condition and our existence? And I also noticed the same thing with with poverty and homelessness, why are people walking by and, you know, acting like it doesn't exist or thinking that it's the person's fault because they're in a homeless shelter or they're sleeping on the street? You know, I was not homeless myself, but I did notice the same, the same social stigmas, you know, they're following the same formula as I noticed as a kid. And to me, they don't, they just didn't make any sense. So I wanted to understand more about why they form and what to do about them. Yeah, I don't think it's a fair way of like conceiving these issues. Daisies blooming, sundress swaying in the breeze. Can't stop staring. You've put a spell on me, and I hope that you never decide to set me free. The way you're moving, it's got me moving my own feet. The greatest feeling. That I could ever dare to dream Is you forever moving next to me Let's not waste time or take this slow We've got miles behind us but miles to go So let's just break this down To the simplest truth You and I as one always be better than two. What was it, do you think, that drew you to art as a medium as opposed to, say, 
becoming either a community activist or leading a nonprofit in the field, or even perhaps um, becoming a lawyer to you know firsthand tackle these issues at a legal way, or running for office and and taking on the policy side of things. But art is the direction that you've taken. Um, so, what was it that motivated that part of this? That's a really good question, and I don't even think I have the answer to that. But it's I do know about myself that I'm really interested in. Um, what would you say? Maybe poetics and ephemeral parts of experience that are difficult to contain and difficult to measure. So I love philosophy, but I, you know, I, I can get behind that kind of thinking, but, but being a lawyer or being an activist, to me, that just smashes out all the gray areas. You can't really, I feel like I'm sure there are some lawyers and activists that <laughs> embrace gray areas, but in their profession, you can't really you can't really talk about those gray areas in a court of law very easily. Um, and so I do think that poetics and metaphor and these kinds of, you know, subtleties and um, nuances of, of experience are the places that I am the most interested in. Yeah. And also just like contradiction and the fact that there aren't, clear solutions that's another thing that is part of the work that i do i think it you know i don't think that there's just one answer to everything i think that there's a we live in a constant state of contradiction and cognitive dissidence and i think that it's really interesting to like open up those spaces and and think about them but i don't know if it does something in the same way that activism and like legal services do something concrete. How are you different because of the work that you've done and continue to do? How have your relationships and your approach to relating changed because of mm. the work you've done? Interesting. I don't, yeah, I don't know if they've changed or if they've fed into the work. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's the chicken or the egg here, but I do feel like I've always really, I've always kind of gravitated toward connecting with, I mean, I love connecting with people. And, and I think that there's something really magical about being able to connect um, with strangers, even in a brief kind of temporary way. Um, yeah, just experiencing connection. Like, yeah, I, <laughs> sorry, I'm like trying to not go too deep down that rabbit hole, but, but basically, um, well, I was just going to tell kind of a really random story that seems kind of silly. It seems too silly probably, but, um, I just think that like, there's something that if I feel like there's this kind of openness that I want to have in life um, to go toward the things that seem unfamiliar or that seem, um, yeah, just like challenges. Um, and of course, these social issues are really big challenges. And I think that my work has informed me more about, you know, how these 
challenges are manifesting in the world. And so I feel like I'm more informed through the experiences of my work, but I also think just naturally, I, I really like to gravitate to, or like engage with problems that feel like they're kind of out of reach or just feel particularly like um, just difficult, um, entrenched problems. I have to ask, I, I really want to hear your, you, you brushed it off as a silly story, but I, I feel like it's important to you. Oh, okay. Well, it's just because it came up just because of this project I just did in Sweden, but I was, so I was doing this project in Sweden that was about um, home remedies for health. And it was creating this structure, like this kind of pharmacy structure where people would exchange remedies with one another for different, um, you know, different remedies for physical health, but also emotional health. Um, and one of the things that I was thinking of is there was this time I was taking a bus in Spain and I was very car I get really carsick, um, and especially in buses. And I was with a friend at the time and I just felt like I wanted to die. I mean, it was just like through these like, horrible, like, crisscrossy roads. And my friend who was with me couldn't really do anything to comfort me. Um, she was trying to talk to me. I couldn't even talk to her. The thing that ended up happening was this like older Spanish woman ended up sitting next to me and started just this conversation about the weather, like the sky and the sun. And I was trying to speak my broken Spanish with her, but it completely got me out of my car sickness. It was the craziest thing where I really like the symptoms were totally relieved. And I think it was just, <laughs> I think that there is something to, I haven't like untangled that completely, but I think there is something that kind of gets you out of yourself and your state and your own kind of ego and your own kind of like, um, you know, your own problems when you start to just look at another person and really connect with them. And I think there's something really wonderful about that. My guest today has been the artist Jody Wood. Jody, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you so much. That was great. You can cut this out if it's too silly. I'm certainly going to cut this bit out. Yeah, everything just said. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.